So, well, once again, I'm very thankful to be uh, in your midst, and we ho- I hope we do have um, a very profitable time. It, the topic is very, it's a very sad, very tragic topic, which I'm addressing here. So I'm very well aware of, of what kind of presentation it is, and I'll split it in different parts. So we will have part one tonight, part two tomorrow morning, and we'll see if I will still continue. I have nearly six, uh, 90 different slides prepared. We will never ever get through it. So I might have three sessions. I might just cut it short and just present two and then go on to a different topic for the third and fourth presentation tomorrow. We'll see. I just pray about it. And I have prepared enough uh, presentations uh, to carry uh, to, uh, yeah, to have enough to present to you. It is a very tragic topic. Why? Well, I, by the Lord's grace, I'm privileged to travel to different countries. I have lived in, uh, in Germany for a while. I have lived in Switzerland for nearly six years. I have lived in Scotland. I have lived in Great Britain for three years. This is the fourth time we actually moved to the States, lived in different uh, sta- states in the United States. So I, I have lived in different places, and I've seen lots of churches, and being a general preacher, I have gone to quite a number of other churches. So I have a broad uh, understanding of what is going on, a general understanding of what is going on in different churches. And I can assure you, what I observe in different churches in the States and in Germany and Switzerland and Scotland and so on and so forth, it's all the same. It's all the same. And I do have some pastor friends in South Africa and Namibia and in different other uh, places, countries where I've never been myself, but I do have some friends over there and they tell me the same story I encounter in, in some churches in America and so on and so forth. It's always the same. And that should uh, cause us to pause a bit and reflect in regards to what we do observe. There's a spirit of deception coming into these churches in very different cultural backgrounds, very different countries, very different denominations, and yet it's always the same phenomenon. They would go around here in this city to visit different churches, and obviously Pastor Vano already told me about some of the churches. My expectation would be we encounter the very same thing again, or I would encounter the very same thing. And I can, I can detect it in a split second. Thankfully, the Lord gave me some grace, uh, some time to study these matters. And once again, I also was able to write different books in English as well as in German. And I wrote three, two books in German, one nearly 300 pages, one 560 pages, and an English book with very, very small print, 357 pages. (laughs) So I, I wrote really more than a thousand pages on my topic. 
And in some ways, and I'm, I'm contemplating, I already told Pastor Werner, but I'm contemplating to write another English book to put everything in that new book and update it, obviously, to bring it um, to our current situation. And in some ways, I still think it's just an introduction to the topic. And this is really true. The topic is so immense. Going back into church history, you can talk about or write about Augustine. He lived in which century? Fourth and fifth. He died 430, right? You can write about him and then progress and partially this is what I did. But I started with Greek philosophy, with Aristotle, with Plato, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, and different other Greek philosophers. So, the, the, the topic is immense. But what you really understand, once you get into the topic, once you study the topic, what you really understand is, there's hardly any Christian substance to it. Most of what you study are like philosophies of a Greek, classical Greek philosophers. There's hardly any Christian substance to it. And the coding, it's just a very thin veneer, a very thin coding around really paganism. And that thin coding is considered to be Christian. So you don't have to dig too, too far to get through the coding to get into some areas where you feel very uncomfortable being a truly born-again Christian. Very, very, very uncomfortable. I will tell you some of the things. And you just have to keep uh, be on the lookout for certain key words. So kingdom theology, there are quite a number of synonyms I could use for the term dominionism. If I use that term, most people actually don't even know what dominionism stands for. They may have encountered the same phenomenon under a different term, a synonym. So kingdom theology would be such a Synonym. Now, sometimes the synonyms are not entirely identical. They may have a, sh- a shading of difference here and there. So, sometimes I need to define my terms fairly precisely. But dominionism seems to be a very good term to use. And it has gone around in the English-speaking uh, world. Um, to describe that particular heresy, and it is a heresy, please accept that as a reality. I'm speaking about dominionism as a vicious, evil heresy. Now, lots of pastors would totally disagree with me, and do disagree with me. And I do know from reports that it's enough in some churches just to mention my name for the pastor to get a red face and blow up. And that is, that is more common than not. I don't get invited by many German churches, for example. Because after a while you do get a reputation. But I do take the time to define. I also do take, um, uh, make the effort to explain why I believe it is a vicious heresy. And I hope you will agree with me 
at the end of the day. I will exert some effort <laughs> to convince you. But ultimately, I don't care if you are convinced or not. Because you are not responsible to me. Neither am I responsible to you. I'm not accountable to you. I'm accountable to the Lord Almighty. So, your challenge is to test everything I say based on the Bible. If I say something which is not in conformity with the Bible, discharge it. Forget about it. Or come to me and, and correct me because that is your duty. That's, that will be your loving service to me. So, you are, as well as I am, responsible to God. And this is, this is the basis this is the basis, not what I have studied or learned or, or am going to teach you. None of it. This is the basis. So let's get going. That was my first introduction. Now let's go. Proceed to the second introduction. <laughs> Working definition of dominionism. So we, we do have to define what we mean by the term. And if I speak in an English context, I usually prepare my PowerPoint slides more extensively. I don't do this in a German context. German context, I usually have just a bare outline. But here in the English context, I do include certain quotes and, and, and some sub-points and things like that, just as a help to you, so that you are able to just follow along and, and read. If you don't understand what I'm saying, you can... Uh, see it projected on, on the screen. So a working definition of dominionism could sound like the following. The belief that Christians have a mandate to build the kingdom of God on earth, restoring paradise by progressively and supernaturally transforming ourselves and all societal institutions through subduing and ruling the earth by whatever means possible, including the use of technology, science, and psychosocial engineering, and then and only then will a Christ, note a Christ, that we Christ, a Christ manifest his presence on earth. That's a fairly good working definition of dominionism. It doesn't cover all aspects. As a matter of fact, in my book, I, in my German book, I address five different streams of dominionism and they are quite distinct and they are substreams of these five main streams so in some sense it's, impo it's nearly impossible to put all the information into one definition so we co go on to in the next slide we go on to explain the basic premise of dominionism and then also the basic uh, method and it's just to get, a, get us started into the topic, right? So let's just look at some of the key terms which we find in this definition. What stands out to you? Well, in the first line right away, that it addresses Christians. Christians, right? Not anyone else. Christians are addressed. Christians are the audience of dominionists. Christians need to do something because there's the word mandate. Mandate means... They are commanded to do something. They ought to do something. There's a message being um, proclaimed 
which should energize you, which should uh, give you an understanding what you need, what you need to do, mandated. It's not optional. Dominionists stand up and say, you have to do the following. Not optional. Because they say, if you don't do it, you're not a Christian. This is our Christian duty. You have to be obedient to the, to the Lord. And you have to do one, two, three, four, five different things in order to prove the fact that you are indeed born again. And what is that overarching, ultimate objective? Line number two, building the kingdom of God on earth. This is your duty. Nothing short of it. You have to start working on that particular program, building the kingdom of God on earth. Well, I put kingdom of God in quotation marks, as you can see. Meaning, what they mean by that particular phrase, kingdom of God. Something completely different from what you might believe it to mean. It is certainly completely different from what I understand the kingdom of God to be. So, here we encounter right away a, a major problem. They use the same lingo, they use the same terminology, they use the same terms, phrases. And they do sound Christian. But they import or they um, give these phrases a very different meaning. So, don't get taken in by well-sounding terms. Are we interested, as a Christian, as a normal Christian, are you interested in building the kingdom of God? Answer, yes, we are interested. I am keenly interested in building the kingdom of God. Keenly interested. But what do I mean in comparison to what the dominionists mean by that, that is really key. You have to catch that. Well, the next few lines will explain a little bit further what the dominionist means by building the kingdom of God on earth, restoring paradise. Is this my understanding of the kingdom of God? Here on, in this world, on this earth, planet earth, am I responsible to bring heaven down on earth, am I responsible to set up paradise conditions? What am I responsible for? To proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. This is my responsibility. Go and teach and so on and so forth, right? Matthew 28 verse 19, go into all the nations and proclaim the gospel I, I try to, uh, to translate from a German verse and teach all I commanded to you and baptize the new Christians in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and uh, lo and behold, is this correct? lo and behold, I am with you all uh, to the end of the age always to the end of the age 
That's my responsibility. That is your responsibility. It's not the responsibility of the pastors. Yes, it's theirs, but it's all of our responsibility if we claim to be Christians. I am not responsible to make Melbourne into a heavenly Jerusalem. I'm not responsible for that. Just imagine what it would take to clear all the crime, all of it, not just 99.9%, uh, all of it. This is really what I mean, all of it. To get into the city council, and once, once you cleared out all the criminals out of the city, and once it is like the heavenly Jerusalem, well, too bad. There are lots of other cities in, in Australia. You still have to clean up in the same way. By progressively and supernaturally transforming ourselves and all societal institutions, so they do recognize there's a problem. The problem is, we are just not strong enough, not wise enough, not wealthy enough, not powerful enough. We do need some help. Now we say it's the Holy Spirit, right? Is it really the Holy Spirit who helps us in that task? Well, it's probably more likely that there are some demons around and they tap into the demonic realm and yes, they get some power. The demonic world is real. It is real. And they do get some power. And they feel pretty good about themselves after a while, but it's not the Holy Spirit. And then what? How do you clean up a city? How do you make a city absolutely perfect? Absolutely perfect. Just like Adam, Adam and Eve lived in the Garden of Eden before the, the fall. That's what they have in mind. How do you do that? Well, they say you have to start with yourself, right? You are still a bit messed up. <laughs> How can you create a perfect city if you are still kind of messed up? So you have to start working on yourself. You have to improve yourself. There are lots of self-improvement programs around. Just go into any big, large city church and you will get 10 different self-improvement programs presented to you. Or more. So you have to get busy first with yourself. You have to improve yourself to the point of perfection. You have to be perfect. You are not allowed to sin anymore. No sin is allowed in your life. Absolutely forbidden. You have to be perfect, and I mean perfect, 100% perfect. Once you have accomplished that task, well, you have to go on and become a mayor of Melbourne. Because now you are um, equipped to handle all these problems of the city of Melbourne. Ultimately, you have to become prime minister. And obviously there are lots of other nations around. I wrote an English book 20 years ago called Building the Kingdom of God on Earth. 
That was the slogan being used by the early Dominionists in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And what did I mean by that? They were very explicit, thankfully. Now, in the meantime, they learned a lesson. In the meantime, they used euphemisms. Do you know what a euphemism is? A term which describes a positive term which describes something negative. That's a euphemism. So, nowadays, they are not as explicit as they used to be. But in the early part of the 20th century, they were utterly explicit. And they were even proud of promoting their ideas as clearly as they possibly could. And they used that phrase, building the kingdom of God on earth for their particular program. What was it? It was purely social and political. And I'm talking about churches, I'm talking about pastors, I'm talking about lay ministers and elders, lay elders in some Presbyterian churches, mostly they were Presbyterians, I have to say, at that time. Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians and Anglicans. Some Lutherans. Not, not too many at that time. Yet. But the main force were Presbyterians. And they said, well, what we mean by using the phrase building the kingdom of God on earth is setting up a world government. Setting up a world government. We want to unite all the nations. Oops. <laughs> all the nations. Under our power. We want to be the ruling council of that world government. We will unite all the nations. This is what we mean by using the term or a phrase building the kingdom of God on earth. World government. They were very explicit. I could tell you quite a number of book titles published in 1919, 1920, even earlier than that, in the latter years of the 19th century. Even up to the Second World War in the 30s, they were writing books with that particular title in, in... uh, this particular phrase in the title, Kivitas Dei is one of those, they use sometimes Latin terms, because they do recognize the similarity to what Augustine wrote about in his very famous book, Kivitas Dei, The City of God. So they, they changed the ter- terms a little bit, Kivitas Dei, but the meaning is still the same, the kingdom of God. And the whole book, the author is Lionel Curtis, history professor at Oxford University, early part of 1930s. The whole book, and it's a very substantial book, has the theme running through. How can we set up a world government using the churches for that purpose? Very explicit. But it means words. They were very clear in regards to their ultimate objective. And they said, churches need to be the vanguard of our force. We cannot accomplish it unless the churches get on board and help us with that program. We need the churches. We need the universities as well. They had a two-pronged strategy, using universities and using churches for that purpose. If we get into the universities, if we get the professors on our side, we have students in our hip pocket. Right? And at that time especially in regards to uh, the American, America is the context of, of most of what I'm saying. 
At that time, most Americans still went to church. I wouldn't consider most of these so-called churches to be true biblical churches. Most of these churches were liberal churches, so I wouldn't necessarily call them true Christian churches, but they were still called churches, right? The person standing behind the pulpit was still called a pastor, or minister, or reverend. So these dominionists, and I could give you names, I I won't do it today because it will take quite a bit of time explaining and so and so forth. You're welcome to read my book if you like to. You don't have to. Churches or pastors still had great influence on the thinking of most people. Back when there was no television, right? Movies had just come in. There was radio, okay. Newspapers. But if you really want to reach the masses in regards to one message, you really want to change the thinking of a whole nation, you needed to be in the church. You needed to be a pastor or a theology professor. That's exactly how I did it. That was really the, the starting point of the so-called ecumenical movement. Now, if I speak about the ecumenical movement, what comes into your mind right away is the thought that the ecumenical movement was set up to do something. What was it? Ecumenical movement to unite right, to the churches, right? To unite the churches. All the churches should come together. And we want to be body-body with uh, the Presbyterians, with the Lutherans, and so on and so forth. That is true. I don't deny it. But that was not the primary purpose of setting up the, the ecumenical movement. The purpose of the ecumenical movement was to unite the churches as a showcase as a means to something very different, a showcase to the statesmen of this world, statesmen of this world, to unite the nations. So the theology professors went, or the pastors, the main leading pastors, went to, for example, Franklin D. Roosevelt, the American president at the time in the 30s, early 40s, and said, well, look, look at the churches. If we set our mind to it, to unite all these churches, we, yes, we have lots of differences. And yet we were successful in uniting fellow council of churches. We were successful. We, we came together. We said, yes, we want to be part of that fellow council of churches. Now, if we churches are able to do that, Despite all our differences, it should be possible to the statesmen of this world to get together and unite all the nations, set up a world government. And this is exactly what they did. I'm not, uh, I'm not inventing that, I'm not lying. I, I, I went to great lengths to substantiate every single statement I make, as radical as these statements were now. And I, I, I realize the, the specific um, radicalness, is that correct, um, of that particular thesis, but it is heavily substantiated with lots of footnotes. And my external examiner was a history professor at the at Cambridge University in, in England 
and he totally was convinced that my thesis was correct. So dominionism is really far larger than you might have guessed. You might have thought, well, it's just the big church down the road. No. It's way bigger. Way, way bigger. It concerns world government. It concerns politics. It doesn't concern just singing some uh, songs with very loud bass, guitar, players, and so on and so forth. It's, it's way bigger than that. And this is really what you have to keep in mind. It's, ama- it's the, the, the realm we are dealing with, or the, the area we are dealing with in regards to addressing that topic of dominionism is, is very extensive. Okay, let's come back to the definition. So yes, we do need some help and we tap into the supernatural. We have to transform ourselves. Yes, we are available individuals, but we have to become perfect as a precondition of eventually cleaning up all societal institutions. And I mean, or they mean all. Through subduing and ruling the earth by whatever means possible. By whatever means possible. There is a company in the United States or there was, but it still exists but it has changed over the years. So I'm not explaining every detail and I'm not explaining all the uh, yeah, meanderings of that particular company but there was a company called Blackwater in the United States and it was a company set up by dedicated, so they claimed dedica- dedicated Christians set up a Christian army by Christian army I mean army in the most literal sense possible army meaning we need fighter airplanes, we need helicopters, we need machine guns we need cannons, we need uh, tanks we need to go through boot camp and so on and so forth to know how to use all this machinery, all that weaponry a so-called Christian army. Why do we need a Christian army? To subdue. To get into power, positions of power. And subduing means, once again, very, very literally, subduing. Gaining military uh, supremacy. And that army of mercenaries, they were not American soldiers. Now, they were former American soldiers part of that particular army. And there were quite a number of mercenaries from other nations. They're not part of the American army. Even though there were, as I said, quite a number of ex-American Marines and so on and so forth. They were hired by President George W. Bush to, to, to be sent to Iraq and fight his war. Many of the soldiers over there were not American soldiers, even though they were under the command of, a, of an American general. They were mercenaries. And they thought of themselves to be Christian soldiers fighting Islam with machine guns, killing off as many 
uh, people over there as they possibly could. They killed. I mean, they literally killed people so badly that obviously there was a big scandal after a while. And due to that scandal, that company changed its name and so on and so forth just to protect itself. It still exists as far as I know. The three soldiers which were, which were tracked through Fallujah, I don't know if you remember that particular incident. Fallujah, the three soldiers were killed and then dragged through the city and then hung upside down from, I believe, from a bridge. Which most people consider to be American soldiers were not American soldiers. They were black water agents. All of them. All three of them. So it's real. So I'm not really talking about something which might happen sometime in the future. Perhaps, perhaps not. No, it already happened. It happened years ago, ten years ago. And the idea is really to rule, to get political power. This is what we want. We need soldiers to accomplish that. We need political power and we are, go- we are getting it by all means possible, including in the use of technology, science and psychosocial engineering. So we, we also use technology Remember, I also told you about a book I wrote, and I spent 11 years writing it. So it was a very substantial uh, writing project for me, and I read hundreds of books. Finished up with 560 pages. And the title is The Spiritualization of Science and Technology to Perfect Humankind. Now you get a little glimpse. <laughs> That's just the title. Now you get a little glimpse why I chose that topic I chose that particular title where I spent really 11 years to write it. It's all about dominionism. And obviously the specific angle I pursued and, and researched was how, how do I use technology? Why is technology so important? Because it gives us, again, more leverage, more power, more choose behind our efforts. We need power, right? Be it technology, science, or the supernatural, but we need power. Otherwise, we will not avail, or our project will not avail uh, to anything. So, technology and science is being changed. You may not know it, but it's being changed into a new religion. It's a new religion coming up. And I could spend the whole mini-conference just to talk about that. I could give you specific terms how they promote that religion is a religion. And it was set in motion in 18, well, already prior to 1825. But in 1825, a book was published in Paris by a French philosopher. His name is Orisor Simon, or Henry St. Simon. He wrote in his year of his death, 1825, a book called New Christianity. New Christianity, obviously, he used French terms for that. Two months later, he died. And then that philosophy slash religion was promoted by his private secretary, ex-private secretary, who departed from him in disgust because Henri Saussimore changed his whole philosophy into a religion, calling it the New Christianity. He was, he was a dedicated atheist. He was totally disgusted by that change of mind in his 
former employer making a philosophy into a religion, but which is exactly what Ari Sosimo Henry St. Simon did, calling it the New Christianity. You can still get that book. It's a very thin book in English translation. I can send it to you if you care to read it. It's a total, absolute perversion of anything Christianity stands for. But lots of Christian terms are being used. And then after a while, after that private secretary who left the employment of Orisis, saw Simon, and went his own way, came up with his own philosophy which was pretty similar to what St. Simon had come up with. His name is Auguste Cart. Auguste Cart. C-O-M-T-E. C-O-M-T-E. Cart. And his philosophy became known as Positivism. Positivism. If you look at the flag of Brazil, right in the center is a saying. I don't. I can't pronounce it in, in Portuguese. But there's a saying. Look. Look at the flag, straight out of one of the books of Auguste August Kant, Positivism. And he realized after a while that his philosophy was not catching on. He didn't get as famous as he had hoped he would. So what lawyer's idea did pop into his mind? How he could prom- uh, promote his philosophy more uh, widely as he was able to at the time, mid-19th century? Change it into a religion. And then people will catch on, and catch on very quickly. He called it the religion of humanity. Religion of humanity. Still the same positivism. And in, in many, many ways, still the same of what, had, of what uh, Henry St. Simon had come up with, with his new Christianity, the religion of humanity. If you go to Paris, you can still find some houses of worship where they did practice that particular religion. still exists. Now there are very few left. But that religion of humanity has spread far and wide, has influenced America from top to bottom, right and left. Most people don't even realize what has happened to America. They have no concept to fall back on in order to understand what really has happened regards to the civil religion being promoted in America. It's not Christianity, it's not evangelicalism, it's not Roman Catholicism. It is that new Christianity. It has assumed different, different terms. Now, I don't blame Americans for not understanding, because most of them don't spend the time reading the books, which they should. Books are available, but hardly anyone reads those books. I read a book on that particular religion, a history book, an academic history book on the progression of that religion, and he even goes way further to the 17th century and even further back. This book was published in 1995, and he said, based on his research, in the span of 40 years from 1955, to the date of publication, 1995, 40 years. Within that span of 40 years, 70, 
70 different synonyms were used to describe a very same religion. And whilst someone may encounter that religion under one term, someone else under a different term, and as I said, there are 70 different terms being used. Now, we progressed 20 years later. I don't know how many other synonyms have been added to that number 70. But I can assure you there are a number of other new terms being used nowadays to describe the very same thing. So most people did or have encountered that particular religion. I'm, I'm very specific in calling it a religion. When I was invited at Baylor University, which is a large university in Waco, Texas, to give a presentation I was asked to speak with some professors in private session before I gave a pres presentation. And I did. And I spoke about that religion and none of the professors had any idea of what I was talking about. None. It's a so-called Christian university. Until I used a specific term. I mean, all the light bulbs went on. Oh yes, look at this book here in my, on, my, in, on my shelf in his office. Zip. Is it this what you mean? Yes, it is. So, ah, I know now exactly what you mean. So most people really know what it is, but they have filed it into their brain under a specific category. And there are lots of different categories, and, and we have to understand uh, what, it, what it truly is in order to understand where we encounter that religion. My understanding and experience in regards to Australia is very limited a few days, and I have heard obviously certain things about Australia before coming here, but still my understanding is very limited. But if I would ask probing questions to some people, if I go, would go down to the University of Melbourne and ask some professors some probing questions, I would expect to get answers back, or I would know approximately what answers would come back, and they all know it. They would not necessarily know it's a religion, but they would know certain aspects, certain vital aspects about it. And I, once again, I'm just guessing. I would assume most of you, if not all of you, would know something about it as well. We are all influenced by it if we want it or not. Usually, obviously, we encounter it by watching TV, or we encounter it by watching some movies coming out of Hollywood. Just about every single movie which has come out of Hollywood in the last few years, almost every single movie promotes that religion. And it's a, it's a scary thought. And that religion is not Christianity. It used to be called the New Christianity. Something which is totally different from what we know Christianity to be. And what is the ultimate thing they are looking forward to, what dominionists are looking forward to, the appearance of a Christ, a Savior. Because once again, they are not stupid, they are not naive. They, sometimes, some of them are highly intelligent, probably much more intelligent than I am. They are not dummies in any way, shape or form. At least most of them, there are lots of followers with no clue, hangers on and people jumping on the same bandwagon because it's popular, it seems exciting and this is where the music plays, right? So there are a lot of uh, people jumping on the bandwagon for their own personal reasons 
But the leading brains behind it are not stupid. And they know that ultimately they are not capable of pulling that off. They are not capable of putting themselves into world power. They are awaiting someone who would actually be capable of doing it. And sometimes they call him Christ, sometimes they, call, they use different other terms. But in a Christian context, they, they say, oh yes, Christ will come back, yes, he will help us. And we will get into power. And they are pretty self-assured in regards to it. Well, if you assess that statement or that, that expectation of these dominionists based on a biblical worldview based on what we know Christ has revealed to the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 13 right? chapter 13 the two beasts appearing on earth one which comes from the sea the other one uh, which is called the, the prophet uh, the pseudo false prophet the first piece is called in different other portions of scripture Antichrist right so the whole dominionist enterprise really if I'm correct and I think I'm pretty correct in that assessment is really setting the stage for the appearance of the Antichrist do you think this is serious? Do you think these individuals who really lead the movement are utterly determined? They are. And they want you to help them. And my purpose is to help you understand what it is and to say no thank you once they appear on on the scene. No thank you. That's easy to say. That's very easy to say. But what happens if they get their army, their so-called Christian army going with machine guns and so on and so forth which they have already done in the past if they take away every opportunity for you to employ it for example in church ministry or in teaching theology I've taught theology for 16 years in different seminaries and colleges I'm utterly unemployable right now (laughs) be it in church service or not. There's a price to be paid. Right? You can say, no, thank you, that's easy enough. But if the person on the other side would say, okay, you don't need to appear for work tomorrow. You have to close down the church. You don't get a paycheck. You didn't get any health insurance. You didn't get health insurance, as a matter of fact. So I'm I'm talking out of very personal experiences. And all of a sudden, my wife has cancer, and you are disallowed to have any health insurance. I'm talking about a real case about my own family, about my own wife. And she got cancer and had to have surgery right away because the pain was getting so so badly, permanent pain every day. She had to have surgery and we were not allowed to have any health insurance. And if you know something about the American system, if 
you get inside a hospital and need some service being done. MRI, one examination of MRI, I don't know what, what it stands for. Cost $5,000, just one. I don't want to prolong that, but there is a price to be paid. You have to reckon with, with that reality. Ultimately, this will be for our good. Because it will, it will help us to bend our knees. It will help us to open that Bible and read certain passages with very different understanding. You will come together as a church to pray very fervently. I can assure you. You will not have any problems coming together to pray. Prayer meeting will be the most visited event of a whole week. That is the reality which will possibly be in our future. Will this be for our good? Will <laughs> it be for our good to start praying and praying much more than we have? Will it be real for us to know that Christ is with us until the end of the age? Will this be real to us? Will we understand what this really means? It will. It will. You better get ready for that. And the only way how you can prepare for that is by opening this book every single day. And read it and try to understand it and apply it in your life. That's the only means. And what is the way how we can fight these dominionists and whoever else will join up with them? By proclaiming the gospel. There's nothing else. Not political action, not demonstration, not voting, proclaiming the gospel. Thank you very much for your attention.